You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach and Happy New Year to you. Can you believe it's 2021? Every new year, I think back to that song that was a hit when I was a kid in the year 2525 by Zager and Evans, whoever they were. And it was very trippy. And, you know, it seemed like, I don't know, that once you hit the 20s, you were in sci-fi territory. And it It feels that way, sort of. I mean, we have little phones in our hands and we have ways to connect that nobody could have foreseen in 1969 when they wrote that song. The song did anticipate test tube babies, but do you think it saw RuPaul's Drag Race or could imagine conjure up a reality show president? You knew I was going there. But if you are listening to this podcast or if you're reading the blog, you know one thing. We made it to 2021 and there were times when it didn't seem that we would. So good for us and God bless those who lost loved ones in the last year. And I know it's a lot of people. Now, you know, we've turned the corner. It's January 1st, but that doesn't mean everything changes and gets better. I mean, far from it. We need to be very patient. We need to wear our masks vigilantly. And I have to say, I think of the mask the way I think of seatbelts. I remember when the seatbelt law was passed, because again, I'm old, and I thought, oh, I will never learn to do that. It will never become second nature. And of course it did. And that's That's the deal with masks. I really haven't made the mistake very often. I'm just trying to think. I I just, I leave the house with a mask and I usually have a backup mask in a pocket. So that's what we're going to have to do. Sitting still for another year until we're all vaccinated. It's a big ask, but we already did a year practically. We can do another if we have to. Now, the exciting part, of course, is that we're going to have a new president, vice president, and that by itself is one, two, three, four, and five. But before I give you my actual list, I want to tell you about my guest this week. It's writer Patricia Morris-Rowe, who's written for all the magazines that we all like, and the New York Times, Vanity Fair, New York, etc. She's written a very cool novel. It's a historical novel. I don't usually read those about Beethoven and a romance he was said to have had with one of his piano students. She spent four years in Beethoven's world, in his head, all the books, listening to the music, thinking about it, It's really a cool book. It's called The Woman in the Moonlight, and she's an interesting person. I think you'll like our conversation first. And for the first time in 2021, here is my list of five things that make my life better. Number one, great customer service. When it's great, it's really a gift. I mean, I know the hold music so well at my drugstore, at the veterinarian's, my lawyer, Verizon. I, I I mean, I know it by heart. I could actually ask my exhibits to put it together and write lyrics to a kind of patchwork of, of waiting music. But I digress. When you find a customer service person who is really good, it just, you feel like you've won a lottery. It comes down to very often having a person and not a robot. Number two, 
Satsuma oranges. They're in season now. They are fantastic. How do you know if they're Satsuma? Well, they're is probably a sign that says Satsuma. Also, their skin is kind of thicker than the average Mandarin, and they often are sold with their leaves on. Now, here's the thing about the Satsuma, aside from tasting good. They have the perfect labor-to-reward ratio. What do I mean by that? You just peel, it, it, they come off with like the least amount of effort and they have no seeds. You know those oranges that you think you're in the mood for an orange and it takes about half an hour and all the rind is in your fingernails and by the time you're all sticky and you decide oh, to hell with it. Not Satsuma, very satisfying, very little effort, very big reward. That's my new measurement. Also, on the labor to reward ratio, Pantheon is your daily newspaper. Think about it. All you have to do is open the page. You don't have to scroll. You don't have to figure out what section something's in. You just get to read it, okay? I know this is sounding like a plea for the good old days, but there's some things that are just simple and good. Number three. The new chair pillow my fella Michael bought for my office chair. You know what? It keeps me in place. I notice that I move around a lot, way too much. I don't know why that is. I don't know when that started, but that pillow keeps me sort of locked and loaded. Number four, my Aunt Yona. I can't believe I still have my aunt alive. She turned 94 this week and she has all of her memory and all of her marbles and a lot of sass. And I do remember that she taught me to drink scotch at one of her birthdays. Well, I was 20, so we could figure it out, but that's a lot of math. And I'm very happy to say she's getting her first COVID vaccine this week. Then again, she doesn't live in the United States. And number five, our youngest family member, that was our oldest, our youngest is Sheila Evelyn. She's a 10-week-old Cavapoo, and she is smart and cute, and we love her already. I did know that it would be effortful to have a brand new puppy. I wasn't aware of exactly what that entailed. I do now. And I know it's worth it. And when she cuddles me, which she does, sometimes without biting, it makes the sunshine. Coming up next, Patricia Morris Rowe and Beethoven's Inner Life. Don't go away. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and I'm back with Patricia Morris-Rowe, who was basically a nonfiction writer and journalist before she wrote this book called The Woman in the Moonlight. It's a novel based on all true stuff about Beethoven, who would have been 250 years old if he could have lived past 56. Last week was his birthday. And Patricia, welcome to the podcast. It's really an interesting story that you tell and the way you decided to do it. So you had written a biography of Robert Maplethorpe. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we're well known for that. Why did you, after researching Beethoven so intensively, why did you decide to do it in a fiction way, not a nonfiction? Well, this, you know, was not my idea. I was having lunch at Michael's when people could get together. And right. 
a colleague uh, from New York magazine who had moved over to Little A, Amazon's literary imprint in New York. And he threw out the idea. He said to me, Beethoven was in love with one of his young piano students, and he thought it would make the basis of an interesting novel. Mm. It appealed to me immediately, even though I had never thought, oh, gee, I'd really like to write a historical novel. But I started to do research thinking maybe she might make a fascinating character for a biography. But ultimately, while there was a lot of colorful information about the period that pulled me in, there ultimately was not enough information about her. So Ah. uh, it was, okay, well, you're going to do it as a novel then. Then then Julie can be a person with attributes that I create for her. Yes. You know, I think this was interesting for me since I've not even written a short story to look at Beethoven and read all the biographies. And and because I had written one biography, I outlined the Beethoven story as if I were writing Beethoven's biography. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it was very important for me to get all those facts straight. But with Julie... I could then drop her in to a timeline that had already been created. So it wasn't as though I was creating an entire universe of characters from scratch. There was enough about Julie. I mean, there, there, but it was sketchy. But Julietta was her name? Her name was uh, uh, Julie, Julie Guicciardi. Uh, but when Beethoven dedicated the Moonlight Sonata to her, the dedication, uh, it was by an Italian publisher and the uh-huh. dedication was in Italian. He became he was Luigi right. uh, van Beethoven and um she was Giulietta Guicciardi but her real name was Julie. I love that. And I love I, okay, I think I buried the lead. It's very much the story of a romance and I mean you said it already but I need to be sort of the host and just state that the woman who is the narrator and protagonist with Beethoven was a real person named Julie. And this takes place in the early 19th century. And there's a modernness to it. Do you think it's because you created her voice that you allowed her to speak in a more vernacular way? Yes. Um, When I first started it, because I was so new to this, I think I was channeling Jane Austen a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it was just really stilted. Mm -hmm. And then because I was very interested in the way women were treated or mistreated during that period, I did want to make it more relatable to people today. And I also think with historical fiction, I think it's, in my view, fine to make the language a little bit looser because otherwise it just will sound clunky or it sounded clunky the way I had originally written it. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to to create a modern woman. Well, that you did. Um, the, The world that you describe in Vienna in the 19th century is... There's Napoleon coming in, taking over and conquering all these countries outside Vienna and making his way in. 
And there's a culture of music and adultery. Yeah, it all collided. I mean, Beethoven is a pretty big character to tackle anyway, but then it right. was like, oh no, don't tell me Napoleon. Oh, we've got Napoleon here too. Yeah, yeah. So and the king were, of Naples. And the king of Naples. So, yeah. And, and Metternich. So, and Metternich, And right. it wasn't as though I had studied this period in history, but I think journalists feel... Because you know you go from you have to one, get it. You have yeah, to dig. You're, you're yeah. writing one uh, opera, one about opera, one day, or about science, another or about politics. So you just felt okay. Well, I can do this. But yes, the society in Vienna, and this surprised me very much. And after Robert Maplethorpe, I should not be surprised by anything. By anything. Yeah. Um, but um, I didn't realize what an incredible decadent society was. It was very much uh, lately. Liaison dangereuse, you know, the aristocrats Mm -hmm. did lead very debauched, decadent lives. And I think a lot of it had to do with the women sort of being sold off into marriage very early on. Well, yes, they were all their parents. If you were of the proper aristocracy, it was mergers and acquisitions. Completely. And what was, you know, when we first meet Julie, uh, she is in Vienna and her two cousins, the Brunswicks, their mother brings them to Vienna to take uh, piano lessons with Beethoven, but also to find a husband for at least one of them. And the most important thing for women was to be able to play an instrument. and Particularly the, the piano. piano forte. It, absolutely, yeah. because you didn't want to play the cello because you had to squeeze it between your between legs. Your so legs. that was a yeah, little that- bit too salacious. Uh, you didn't want to do violin because there would be dangerous slashing motions that would make you know the men think, oh, she could be a troublemaker. So, <laughs> so the piano forte really was. It showed off your posture. It showed off your dainty wrists, and and, and it was the ideal instrument to get a man. Mm-hmm. And it also, if you had a drawing room with a piano forte in it, you were proof of stature right there. Absolutely. Now, a couple of things we need to talk about is how women, you talked about how women were treated, but I was amazed by the independence of the women in the book, Julie primarily, but her cousin, Josephine, people had affairs, they raised children who were not born of wedlock, they traveled a lot. A lot of women entered Beethoven's private apartments wherever he happened to be. Yes, and he was in many different places, at least 68. So uh, there was a lot of traveling. Um, And he was a slob. Oh, my God. The descriptions of that man's apartment, you know, chamber pot, unemptied. Herring. Herring. Herring and salami next to the manuscript of the Misa Solemnis. Coffee Coffee everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. He was a slob, uh, which is probably why he really never married, but there are other reasons for that too. But uh, yes, I think the women... And I found this very much in reading a lot of the Beethoven biographies, is that the the men who wrote about Beethoven were very loath to get into any 
of the romances. Mm -hmm. So the women were kind of shoved aside. There's always been this question, who's the immortal beloved? Is, uh, mm -hmm. You know, that was the one letter discovered after his death. He's right. written many other letters. So it, that that just seemed to be a little ridiculous. But the a lot of women played very important roles during that time. It's just that they got lost to history. Uh, I so interesting, like the piano maker. Nanette Stryker, you, you know, what really fascinated me was I was able to spin off for the times like four characters that were in Beethoven's life, but because he's such a major player, he renders even other major players, minor yes. players. Yes. Uh, but Nanette Stryker, may, I mean, she was a piano maker, and that was rather remarkable for a woman in the late 1700s, you know, early 1800s. She made Beethoven's pianos. She, she owned the business that made them, yes. or she actually made she, them? Both. Both. Wow. Yep. Both. How did she? How did she get to do that? Her father was a, a famous organ maker and piano maker in Germany, so he was. And very she had famous. no brothers, I guess. Um, I believe she. Yes, yeah, she did have a brother, and he made pianos too. They were in business together when they first came. That's uh, quite to, remarkable, to right? But yes, now she had workmen too. I mean, it just right, wasn't right. Uh, Nanette in a big warehouse <laughs> with a with a hammer with um, Mr. Stein. Steinway looking yes, on. exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, she did a lot of it. And she learned um, from her father from the age of seven or eight. I mean, she was learning tuning. She was all of that. Uh, and that I found fascinating. Several of Beethoven's major interpreters in terms of his uh, piano sonatas and works were women. But they've hmm. gone, they've fallen by the wayside. Right. I like how you said it. They become, even if they're major characters, they fade yes. into minority. Yes. What about the divorce? People didn't divorce or did they then? Do you know? Yes, they did divorce. Yeah. Um, they could divorce. I mean, it, it was a Catholic country, but the aristocrats really didn't go to church. So, I mean, they were pretty much Catholic in name only. Um, they divorced or they, you know, had multiple lovers. And that was just very common. You know, someone said to me after they read the book, you know, oh, my God, there's quite a bit of sex in the book. And I thought, Mm, God, did I go overboard? And then when I was writing another piece about another person connected to Beethoven for the Times, um, uh, Prince uh, Esterhazy, reading about him, it was like, and of course, he kept his own brothel in Vienna. So it was like, okay, it was pretty wild time. It really was. So, so interesting. If you applied a 2020 lens to Ludwig Beethoven, von Beethoven, how would you, with our access to therapy and, and knowing what we know about human nature now, how would you diagnose him? I know you're not a therapist and I know you don't, that's not what you intended to do with the book, but still, he's such a vibrant character. He comes alive so well in your writing. I'm wondering what you think. Would he be just a kind of narcissist or would no, I we... think he's, uh, I think he would be diagnosed as autistic. Uh huh. Um, and I think he was probably bipolar. 
you know, yeah. this up yeah. and down. You hear that very much in the music. I know musicologists don't like, don't like people talking about you know his music that way, but certainly um, the autism comes across. He's you know just singularly focused on the music. And the bipolar, the he could be ex- so exceptionally tender and mm-hmm. then just fly into these rages. And then, of course, you can't discount the fact that he was progress. He had grown progressively deaf, right. uh, which is you know when he meets Julie for the first time, he's grappling with his deafness. But you have the deafness. You have all sorts of intestinal issues yes, that he had. Yes. I mean, physically, he was a mess. But I think the autism, you know, the the letters, he, he was brilliant in terms of puns. I think a lot of people who are autistic tend to do very well in mathematics or, um, mm-hmm. or are musicians. So that would be my uneducated guess. Well, uh, yeah. Yes, and you describe very well how he could be tender to Julie one moment and then rage at her or cause her to leave in tears. The uh, dynamic between them is fascinating. You've created a heroine who I was rooting for. I wanted her to find happiness and... Uh, I don't want to give it away, but there are some satisfying things that happen. Oh, what about the character Muller, Joseph Muller, who oh. had death masks? Was that a big thing oh, in Decadent yes. and Fianna? Well, you know, there are certain things that make you want to write a book. And I have to say, Joseph von Dame, who was Air Muller, had this cabinet of curiosities and wax museum around and the grill. same time. <laughs> yeah, around the same time. Yeah, around the same time, uh, Madame Tussaud. And I didn't right. know that Madame Tussaud learned her craft by plucking heads from the gutters. From cadavers. The yeah. yeah, from the French Revolution. But yeah. no, he was, uh, he created a lot of wax figurines and he uh, did all of these, uh, had strange you know, like fetuses and bottles. It was just one yeah. of those old-fashioned cabinet of curiosities. But once I read about it and then learned that he lived, he kept it in this 88-room palace downstairs after he had married Julie's cousin, Josephine. That was the guy uh, the mother married her off to. Right. Who was like that 30, was years, 30 years older. And, you know, here you are. And the husband dies early, leaving right. her pregnant with three children, not a lot of money. And but, some and some random kids that he fathered roaming the 88 rooms. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, and Mozart's death mask, which Herr yes. Mueller, you know, finds out that Mozart is dying, rushes over, asks Constanza, as one and, does, as as one often does, um, gets the clothes, and um, there the the Mozart's death mask was in the cabinet of curiosities. But that was pretty I'm, common to have death masks. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. as one does, yeah. as one does. I have to say. Uh, to all of our listeners, I really think you can get a solid weeks of escapism with the woman in the moonlight. I really was disappointed to come back to New York 2020. I really was because that world was so fascinating. You made me care about people that I never heard of. 
and the debauchery was fascinating. The sloppiness of Beethoven was fascinating. Beethoven, the ballet master, it, it really, the king of Naples, it's got everything and it takes you away. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. So Patricia, you gave us a really great list of the five things that make your life better. I'd love it if you would describe them one by one. Well, the first one would be Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, particularly uh, his Ode to Joy. Which, which you actually talk about, you have him writing it in, in the course of your novel. Yes, because uh, what was really fascinating to me in real life, Julie had gone off to Naples with her husband, who's always been described as the modestly talented Robert Gallenberg. <laughs> yes. uh, and um, he came with several other people to take over the Kärtnertor Theater, where Beethoven premiered the ninth. So that to me was uh, having Julie come full circle with Beethoven. So mm -hmm. I spent a long time listening to the ninth and trying to figure out how best to describe it. But uh, I think the choral finale, the Ode to Joy, is just um, remarkable. And according to the book, he wanted to compose a piece with a chorus. And people said, no one does that. Yeah, this was the yeah. first symphony with a chorus. And it was gigantic. There were gigantic. 82 singers and 82, you know, 80 musicians on that stage that night with only mm. two rehearsals. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> wow. Okay, number two. Oh, yeah. My husband, luckily, is a good cook. And uh, I love to have a little place outside the city. And I love to sit in front of the fireplace and eat what he's made. Um, I mean, he doesn't cook it in, in the fire. In the fireplace. Yes, he doesn't do that. But um, that is, uh, especially on, on cold winter nights, um, that I really is very, very pleasurable to me and quite necessary because, you know, I'd be eating a yogurt or something if not for my husband. <laughs> you lucked out there. I did. <laughs> Number three. I love Bringing Up Baby with Cary mm -hmm. Grant and Katherine Hepburn. I just think it's the best screwball comedy ever. For the longest time, I coveted the house, the country house that mm -hmm. they lived in until I realized uh, it was actually a soundstage. Uh, but that is, <laughs> I mean, her, the costumes, George oh Cukor is so brilliant in that. I once got an opportunity to meet him. I was dating. Wow. Yeah, I was dating a journalist who came to interview him. So we went to his house, which was amazing. When you see little children tchotchkes that are GG for Greta Garbo. Oh, but, my God. But the, and this was in Los Angeles? It was. It was. And unfortunately, my boyfriend went on for too long in the interview, and George Cukor had a bit of a temper, and he threw us out. Oh, um, yeah. He said, it's time to leave. But then I think he felt a little bit bad and about it. And then he said, you know what? If you want to go skinny dipping in our pool, you can. <laughs> we didn't, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's that's never happened to me in an interview <laughs> some weird things but not that um number four 
oh, this is gossiping and laughing with my sister. I have my younger sister who lives in Boston, and I've not been able to, because of COVID, I've not seen her since last Thanksgiving. But, mm. you know, we, we're, we're big on the phone, not so much Zoom. So, you know, I think when you have a shared history, Um, Mm -hmm. and a shared sense of humor, uh, and if you get along with a sibling, uh, there's nothing better to be able to just laugh and gossip and talk about other members of your family. (laughs) We do that. We, if I want to know what's going on with one brother, I call the other brother. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's how it's done in the Birnbach household. I'm not sure it's the best way, but it's, it's a way. (laughs) And number five. A Shakespeare in the Park, Mm -hmm. um, which I've been going to from the time I came here really as a student. And I've moved up the ladder so that I don't have to, you know, wait outside for uh, 18 hours for tickets. But (laughs) it it is always such a pleasurable summer thing. And I, you know, I remember seeing Meryl Streep very, very Mm -hmm. early on and, Mm -hmm. you know, Measure for Measure and even Sam Waterston and Hamlet and Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer and Twelfth Night. It's it's always been magical. Yeah, Yeah. that Twelfth Night was really great. great. And Hair. Did you see Hair? Well, not not only did I see Hair in the park, I was the actor Will Swenson. I think yes. he's the one going off to Vietnam. At one yes, point, yes, he's Claude. Uh huh. At one point, he looks out into the audience and goes, "Mom, stand up." And he picked me. <laughs> oh, no, he you're did. not old and, enough to be his well, mother. Well, that was my thought. And then I realized, oh, I might even be his grandmother. And then I was so <laughs> furious with him. I, it was like, for the rest of the play, go to Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> see if I care. Yeah, see if I care. Meanwhile, he was, he was wiggling around in a loincloth. He was. He was fantastic. Yeah, he was. Except for that one line, yeah. Okay, (laughs) well, yes. Theater in the park in the summer, which is free, if you are willing to wait online to get in, is so great. It's one of those New York things that that makes the city the place that it is and the joy that it offers. Well, it's a great list. And it took you four years, I think I heard, to write this book? Yes, it did. I mean, it's now been five years, although I stopped writing in March, just as the pandemic hit. And as I told people, it was the wrong time to come out of the 19th century. I mean, I might have been dead from other things. But that was a world that I inhabited. And I was very eager to go out and meet friends that I'd ignored um, for all all those those years when, you know, I was just cavorting with imaginary people or not imaginary people, dead people, actually. Right. Um, So yeah, I got locked in at the at the wrong time. I picked the wrong gear to quit smoking. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And do you know what you're going to be doing next? Do you well, it's not going to be book? Einstein. No, I mean it's like yeah. where do you go from Beethoven? Yeah, I have no idea. This oh, took same. This took a lot. Out. This takes, <laughs> Beethoven is not an easy man to spend a long time with. Right, he demands your full attention. You can't be figuring out, you know, saying, mm, let me explore Brahms while you're still working on Beethoven. Right, he just wouldn't tolerate that. So no, I had to be no. loyal to him. I I totally understand. 
My guest this week has been Patricia Morris Rowe, author of The Woman in the Moonlight, a historical novel published by Little A at Amazon. You can follow Patricia on Facebook and Instagram at patricia.morrisrowe or on her website at Patricia Morris Rowe. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My blog is at lisabirnbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Espresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. It's 2021. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.